Again, I don't know exactly how and why they changed their mind, but they must have decided, you know, if something goes really bad here, and when I say really bad, I mean like a player dies or an athlete has long-term health problems or a coach does, or even fans somehow, if some places are letting some fans into a stadium and somehow they end up with COVID, the lawyers must have determined, you know, maybe I'll take a hit here, but it's not going to be that bad. It's going to be worth the payoff of having football. Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we have independent journalist Patrick Ruby. Now, Patrick is one of the sharpest knives in the box when it comes to the NCAA and big-time college sports. And we're going to talk to him about this week's shocking decision by the Big Ten, who said that they would be playing football by October. Also, love is in the air. And I have choice words about the marriage between Edge of Sports podcast guest Maya Moore who's also one of the great living basketball players on the face of the earth, and Jonathan Irons, who she helped rescue from a life behind bars. I also have Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Awards and more. But first, Patrick Ruby. Patrick, how you doing? Good, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. I mean, obviously these are complicated <laughs> times. Yes, they are. To put it mildly, um, my goodness, it, what, what, what a world. Um, I guess let's stick with what we want to talk about, although if you want to give any uh, <laughs> takes, I'm here for you. You know, my only, honestly, my only take is from, from last night and from things in general is uh, I, I feel like the Al Pacino locker room speech in any given Sunday really applies to everything and the thing about uh, the guy that's willing to die go get that for that inch is the one that's going to win. I feel like that's where we are because I feel like that's what Republicans are about. I like feel they like want stuff. I feel like the Democratic sorry, stuff go ahead. Go ahead. broadly, Democratic stuff, policy preferences, the kind of society Democrats wants, it's broadly popular. There are more There are more people overall that kind of want those. Like the, oh yeah, that'd be really nice. It'd be nice if we had health care. It'd be nice if we had gun control, right? But like Republicans, it's like they're really, really united and extremely passionate about, no, actually, we want a society that's this way. And I feel like over 50 years, they've gotten a lot of what they want. Not all of it, but a lot of it, because they put in the work and the money and the effort. And they never stop. And they're unified. And I just don't see that on the other side of stuff at all. Because the other side is a lot, a lot of different sides that are sort of under a big non-Republican tent. You know what I'm saying? And that's what I think. That, I think that explains sort of our politics and policy more than anything else right now. Yeah. And, you know, the, the one uh, hope, if we want to call it that, is that they are legitimately a minority. They are a minority right. party. Right. That is somehow but, but they're, but they're such country. a large enough minority and by the, so they're large enough and they have enough intensity of what they want and they agree about what they want. I think that that's kind of I don't know. I just think that explains where we're at. And I think the, the hope you have to have is just probably over time. Uh, demographic attitude will change. And I don't just mean like racial demographics. I just mean, in general, younger people have different views about what they want society to be. And as they get older and into power, they'll probably make choices that change what society is. That's just the way I look at it. I don't know. And then a 92-year-old uh, Justice Kavanaugh strikes down 
whatever well, these young I mean, folks. People are so people are like, oh my god, it's true. Like it's going to be like a six-three court, and that's going to be really rough. But like the thing about the Supreme Court is like, look, it's always been a reaction, a cons- with the exception, yes. with the exception of a short period of American history in like the yeah the sixties and seventies. It's always been a trailing indicator in society. It was designed to be that. It was designed to sit there and like let's not move too fast on moving things forward or making things different, right? And I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying that's the point of it. Um, but no, I also... There's a myth that they're not subject to public pressure when they totally are. That's the thing. It's like, they're like, they're not wizards. They're not kings. Like everybody else, ultimately, they have exactly as much power as we call consent for them to have. So if there's a ton of public pressure, they back down. They back down when FDR is like, I'm going to pack the courts. And the only reason FDR could get away with making that threat is because there was enough public support for his agenda. So they backed down. So if there's enough public support, and I don't mean like, again, I don't, it's like, it's all gun control, right? I don't mean like 85% of people want more gun control. Okay, that's great. But like the 20% that don't are fucking out there every day, like maniacally fighting for what they want. And the other people are just sitting around like, oh, it'd be really nice if we had some better laws. They don't do anything about it. They really don't. They have a couple marches, but they don't, they don't primary people. They don't spend billions year after year. They don't like punish any politicians. You know what I mean? It's just not the same. And that's the courts respond to that pressure too. I agree with you. So we'll have to. We'll just have to wait and see. If yeah, people, people are going to have to want stuff real bad to get it. I think that's. I think that's the. Unless you're a billionaire, right? Then you can just buy it. But if you can't, <laughs> you have to really, really want it and really fight. You know, anyway. We are talking about asymmetrical warfare. Yeah, <laughs> in the present, but let's see if maybe this. Anyway, yeah. let's, let's move to the actual stuff we're supposed to be talking about. Well, but one last thing I'll just say is that there's a great sports and politics angle if people want to understand the Supreme Court, and that's Muhammad Ali, when uh, you know the justices were deadlocked about whether he should go to prison, federal prison, for five years, and then you know their uh, clerk made an argument to them that you know that they're that we were living in a time of potential black revolution and they should be scared about that. And then it was a, a unanimous decision to overturn his conviction. Yeah. I mean, like that, that's a great example. Like public pressure matters. And I, I think we've already, honestly, again, I'm not a court scholar or a big court follower. Like I think you've already seen some of that particular from John Roberts, who for being someone who's very like lifetime committed to the conservative project, committed to the corporate project, Right. He also has already shown he is also committed to trying to uphold some degree of social stability of not just grabbing every single thing conservative wants, at least immediately, right? Like he's already shown that, like he is not stupid along those lines, Mm -hmm. right? Like he might be an ideologue as most people on the court are because the court is a political body, despite what people like to tell fairy tales themselves about. Um, But like you said, you, ultimately, you, in America, like you're still constrained in a way by the will of the people and the support of the people and the consent of the government. Well, if it's all right with you, um, I'll keep this section in the interview. Is that OK? <laughs> it is. I don't know if I made any sense, but sure. No, I just think everybody uh, probably needs a little bit of uh, therapy right now. And I think uh, honest, sober political talk is better than doom scrolling on Twitter. Yeah, I know that's that. None of this is actually good news. I mean, having to fight for stuff, especially stuff you felt like you already fight and went fought for and won, is really hard and exhausting. And a lot of people, in a lot of ways, are going to suffer because of this. So I'm not trying to be yeah. blithe about it or happy about it. 
is just sort of try to try to keep that perspective of like it isn't the end of the world it just means the world got harder yeah no that's right but that's you could make point. it better but you know it's that's also sucky <laughs> like I, I don't have good news here i just have better than the worst news yeah no that's real talk right there um so let's take this to the big 10 um I when, I when I introduced you onto the show, I called the decision by the Big Ten, I called it this week's shocking decision by the Big right. Ten that said they'd be playing football. Was it a shocking decision in your mind? To, to my mind, not at all. Here's what I mean by that. Yes, on one hand, it is kind of um, weird for them to say we're not going to play and then just to flip-flop. That, I guess, is shocking that you don't see that happen very often. But I think we should stop and go back and look at the basics here, which is everybody involved here really wants to play football. The schools want to have football. The athletic departments desperately want it for financial reasons. The coaches obviously want it because they're football coaches. And same with the players. The players want to play. Like that's The players want to be safe, but they also really want to play. And of course the fans want it. And in this equation, the fans not only want football, but like, they're the one party here that is taking on absolutely no risk in having football being played. So not only do they want football to be played, but like there's not even a trade-off at all for them here. There's nothing for them to consider. It's like I got to sit down on my couch and watch my favorite team play, right? That's not increasing any fan's risk of getting COVID. It's, mm. not, it's, not, it's not increasing the risk of any injury. The, the, the fans are not going to get sued if something goes wrong. There's no reputational potential damage to a fan if something goes wrong. Those are things that the players, the coaches, and the schools very much have to consider. And I think those are the reasons why, in the first place, the Big Ten pumped the brakes, right? Um, so, I, I, like I said, I, that's to me why it's not shocking. This is the outcome everybody wanted. And I think the more important question is sort of to look at, well, what changed from the decision mm -hmm. to pump the brakes to the decision of, like, let's restart the car? Yeah, how do you account for the reversal? I mean, because it's like, it, I'm with you. Like, I wouldn't have been surprised if this was the position from jump, like the SEC, for example. Right. But how do you account for the reversal? Why did they go one way and then zigzag the other way? I think there are a couple of factors. Um, I think the pressure from the public pressure uh, from fans, from the players and coaches, uh, the sort of lack of, of uh, unity in terms of leadership, right? The, uh, the fact that the Big Ten didn't, it didn't seem like it really had all of its internal ducks in a row before it announced this, to be honest. I mean, mm -hmm. the reporting is a little unclear, but for the most part, it doesn't, it seems like they, you know, the university presidents, like they wanted to pump the brakes, but they weren't ready to then strongly defend that. And maybe they just weren't ready for the blowback they got. I'm not really sure. But I think that absolutely played a role. Look, football is a very public thing and it involves fan bases. It's a lot like sports are a lot like politics in this way. So like that really matters, like messaging and public opinion and all those kinds of things really matter. So I think that's one factor. Um, I don't think that's the most important one, though. I really don't. I don't think Trump's a factor in this at all. Like people will disagree. People, there was a whole conspiracy theory like, oh, these liberal college presidents and liberal governors were taking away football to make Trump look bad and make him hurt in the election. What a bunch of absolute bullshit. Like, no, that's not what was going on at all. Like, we can throw that out. We don't need to discuss that anymore. Um, I do think the biggest probable reason, and this is the one that's hardest to get at, 
it would take some investigative reporting to really know is whoever medically and also and importantly legally advises the conference, the university presidents, all the decision makers here on risk, something about their calculation has changed. Now, maybe on the medical side, it's what they talked about. It changed because they were able to, they're going to have access to rapid testing. And maybe they looked at some more of the uh, heart data in particular and felt like there's not enough of a, of a risk or at least a knowable risk here to, to make us pump the brakes anymore. I know they said that was a big factor when they stopped in the first place was the unknown part of it. I don't know how much that's really changed. It's still pretty unknown. That's, to me, disturbing. But I think that must have changed. But I think what also really changed is the people who advise them on the legal risk and the reputational risk. Again, I don't know exactly how and why they changed their mind, but they must have decided, you know, if something goes really bad here, and when I say really bad, I mean like a player dies or an athlete has long-term health problems or a coach does, or even fans somehow, if some places are letting some fans into a stadium and somehow they end up with COVID, the lawyers must have determined, you know, Maybe I'll take a hit here, but it's not going to be that bad. It's going to be worth the payoff of having football. Oof. I think. I think that's that. Ha- that I'm not. I, look, I'm not trying to be cynical. Like, of course that. No, happens. no, like, I think that's accurate. If they're not getting that advice, they wouldn't do it. And then I also think the reputational thing really matters here, and it matters. I think what honestly, it's those other conferences and schools that just plowed ahead, and we've seen what's been happening. They're playing football. They're canceling games like almost entire rosters in some type cases are, are getting the virus. And they're just kind of like, we're going we're gonna to tweet through it. We're going to post through it. That's basically what they're doing. And what has happened? There's no public outcry. No one's like really, really shaming them. There's a couple of sports columnists being like, this is a bad idea, right? The fans are happy. The players are not striking, right? The players are pretty much happy to play. Mm-hmm. They're not revolting. Like, I think the reason you see the Pac-12 now they're trying to, I think, come back. But the reason they haven't been as eager to jump back as the Big 12, um, it isn't just because there's less interest overall in Pac-12 football. Also, their players were more adamant about, like, we want protections. And they were adamant about wanting other stuff. And they were adamant more about trying to unify and maybe unionize. The Big Ten players were much more, like, lukewarm about that stuff. They did kind of join it. But if you looked at what they said, it was a lot softer than the Pac-12 players. And so... I think the, the Big 12 just looked at that and is like, well, if the players want to play too, you know, like there's not a lot of pressure for them not to do it anymore. There's no, there hasn't been much big blowback. They don't look bad for doing it, right? None of these schools that have been played through, the SEC, the other conferences, even when they had to cancel games, even when there's been uh, outbreaks, they're not really suffering anything significant at the school level or the conference level for that. And so I think those are all the factors that come together that made it, almost inevitable that the big time was going to make this decision. You mentioned the the lack of outcry. One person that we heard from was our, uh, our friend, Christine Brennan, uh, who, you know, is on the, I just learned this from her column is on the board of trustees at Northwestern. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew she was connected to the big 10. I knew she taught there, but I did, I didn't know she actually had a position of power at Northwestern. Right. I didn't know it either. She, she called it the darkest day in the history of the Big Ten Conference. And a lot of people came back at her and said, uh, Jerry Sandusky, Nasser, wrestlers at Ohio State. And that got me also thinking for a second, geez, what's wrong with the Big Ten that you have the, (laughs) that 
that you had. I didn't. I never made that connection before. That the some of the most horrific scandals have all taken place in this conference. That frankly likes to see itself as more, uh, you know, academically um, affluent than say the SEC, and and yet they they have all of these skeletons in their closet. But but it disp- but Christine actually she pushed back on people who said that and said no on a conference level this is the darkest day in the history of anything this conference has ever done I mean do you think that I um, mean forget about the comparisons mm-hmm. to Sandusky and, and Nasser and the like um, do you think this decision is really that terrible I mean just taking a step back is is this the heights of injustice or do you think they have a handle on this and uh, will will come out of this relatively unscathed. I think the idea of will they be unscathed depends on how you define the scathing, right? Like, I have no idea what's going to happen in terms of medical and long-term medical. I don't know if there's a player or multiple players who are going to get sick enough to where they either die, which is the worst-case scenario, or they have serious long-term health problems, which is the second worst-case scenario. In either one of those cases, I think that's a pretty good scathing. Is that going to do anything long-term about people wanting Big Ten football, players wanting to go play Big Ten football, TV networks pouring money into Big Ten football? Absolutely not. I think something we need to remember about football is that football already is an incredibly risky and dangerous sport. I, don't, I say this as someone who covers that part of football. I say this as someone who doesn't watch football because of that. You know, I'm talking about brain damage, but I'm also talking about all the other ways that football damages and destroys people's bodies. Um, I think a lot of people, I mean, uh, in a way, again, this is why it's not so shocking. People have long made their peace with that. Even the people who play, the administrators, the coaches, the schools, they've all made their peace with that. It's not a mystery. And so this is just one more risk. And like I said, I think they've decided that it's acceptable. Um, I'm not sure what would change that calculus at this point. Maybe a death. I think that would be a big, like, excuse the word, a big scathing thing. If that doesn't happen, I think long term, this is just something they'll play through. They'll play on, the games will go on, the show will go on. Um, I don't mean to sound cynical when I say that. I think it's just sort of, if you look at history, it's the truth. And the last point, just to get to the idea of like, this is the darkest day for the conference. I mean, Christine's columnist, it's just a title to her opinion. I, I would just say that I'm not sure how different. This, this is, in some ways, than having college football at all in the first place. And again, I'm referring to the risk of brain injury and the long-term devastating re- repercussions that can have. Um, that's pretty bad, and people are fine with that. So, I, again, COVID, I, it's hard to, like, sort of, those are apples and oranges types of risk. It's hard to sort of compare them directly. But the idea of there's a health risk, so we can't do this, doesn't really apply that much to college football in the first place. Yeah, that cuts to the next question I was going to ask you. I mean, you just touched on it, but maybe some some other angles if you have them. Mm-hmm. What does this entire uh, soap operatic journey of the Big Ten, what does it tell us about college football? You know, I think what this whole soap opera across college football all summer, not just the Big Ten, but the Pac-12, the SEC, this sort of, um, you've got Morehouse getting out in front and canceling their football season before anybody, the Ivy League's doing that. Uh, Some schools are canceling, just some schools are canceling all sports. You have um, all these 
the, you know, put aside the sports part of it. You've got different campuses having totally different uh, methods and approaches to COVID or like North Carolina brought their students back. And then like a week or two later after a bunch of outbreaks, they have them all do remote schooling. And it's, it's such a chaotic mess, right? And what I think it teaches us more than anything is it is a window and a mirror into the chaotic mess that is America's response to COVID as a whole. Mm. I think it's a really good reflection. And just as in our country as a whole, the lack of unified, uh, strong, direct leadership on this is the problem, this is how we're going to address it, here's how we're going to adjust along the way, here's what we need to do, and we're going to do it has never happened at the federal level. And I don't need to go into all the reasons for that. We're all very familiar. You know, we don't have that leadership. Um, we're completely chaotic and divided. I think you see the exact same thing in college football. The NCA has, and college sports, the NCA has never been a strong central leader on athlete health and safety. It does not make rules for that. It puts out guidelines. It sends everybody a nicely worded letter, like, here's what you should do, but that's a should. It doesn't say it's what you have to do, and we're going to enforce that, and we're going to punish that if you don't do it. They save that for amateurism. They save that for the money. They don't do that for athlete health. It tells you a lot about their priorities, but I think that's come home to roost all summer long, and it's still roosting now. And unfortunately, just like people really want to play football, like, people seem to be basically okay with that. There's not an outcry among the NCAA schools because they are the NCAA to mm. have some sort of like unified health and safety plan for their athletes. There wasn't for concussions. There hasn't been in general. There's not for COVID. It's disheartening because it makes me feel like, well, this will never change unless somebody like Congress steps in and makes them change. Congress is talking about that a little more than they used to. But it's Congress. I don't know if I have a lot of faith in anything actually ever getting done. No, certainly not. Now, you you and I exchanged a, an email about this. Um, there's also a guinea pig aspect to all of this, where the Big Ten is saying that they'll collect medical data based upon what happens. Can you explain what that is all about, and also maybe tell us if you think that that's uh, that's moral? That's a great question because I I have. I have mixed feelings about this. Like on one hand, if they're going to play football anyway, which is the decision that's been made, right? Like it's probably good and helpful for scientists and doctors at these big 10 institutions to be collecting data on players who do contract COVID, looking at their hearts, following them, seeing, uh, what the actual effects long-term are aren't. That's like valuable and important data for all of us in society, right? Like we, we, this, we've only had this, this virus around for less than a year right now. There's so much we still don't know about the long-term effects because they haven't had a chance to play out. So I think like from the standpoint of like, is that a good idea for the advancement of medical knowledge? Yeah. One side of that is, this is very disturbing from the moral perspective of like how scientific experiments are generally run. Like generally, like to do human research, you have like an institutional review board has to come in. They have to look this over. They have to approve it. And it's very important. Like, like, like the, there's a lot of stuff you can't do with human research because you can't put humans at, at, at risk in certain ways. And even if those risks are largely unknown, that's also a risk. Um, 
And you have to really have the consent of the subjects in the study. All that stuff was put into place after the Tuskegee experiments, which I, I get not to get into too much detail there, but like the U.S. government um, basically was giving African-American men syphilis on purpose and then studying to see like how it played out over time. It was like one of the most horrifying incidents and shameful chapters in the history of our government and country. Um, so we're trying to avoid that. And I'm not trying to say, again, there's a one-to-one -one comparison here of what's happening in the Big Ten and studying COVID and football players. But what I am saying is that like, if they weren't just going to play football already and you were just walking into a university and being like, I'd like to run this study on a bunch of young men that are students at our school. And like, like we're going to like, some of them are going to be exposed to COVID and then we're going to follow them and things like that. It might not be that easy to get approval. They might be like, that's kind of unethical. Um, look, medical ethics is a complicated thing. So I don't want to say it's completely simple. But there's definitely questions there. It's definitely something that at the very least should make us all uneasy. There is an element of being a guinea pig there. And I have no idea to what extent the athletes and their families are aware of that, understand that, or are okay with that. And that's really important. And I hope, I hope that those questions are asked, answered satisfactorily. But yeah. I haven't seen any reporting indicating that they are. No, no, no. That, that was really good. Um... And you've been really generous with your time, but I got to ask you about this because um, I consider you to be a real trailblazer, uh, an important, important writer on the question of race and college sports, mm -hmm. um, really writing about this stuff before it was being discussed now much more openly in the mainstream media and among players and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, do you see what intersection do you see at play? with this Big Ten decision and the question of race in college football? I mean, I think it's, it's one more example of college football, especially big-time college football, but sort of revenue-generating college sports as a whole. Um, you know, they exist as this sort of structurally racist entity where – the labor is largely performed by young black men. The physical risk is almost entirely assumed by young black men and the minority of white, white, young white men that are also, and, and of other races that are also playing. So I, it's not just young black men, but they are numerically the largest party here. So they are doing the work, they're taking on the risk, and all the money they're generating is almost entirely flowing to the people above them on the totem pole, the coaches, the administrators, the strength coaches, the third quality control assistant, the everybody at the athletic department, the Ohio State's athletic department is larger than the White House staff. I mean, just all this, all this, all these overseers, essentially, and they are overwhelmingly white. The decision makers who keep the system in place, the people who are fighting in court against the athletes, getting more of the pie, they're all white. And that's the part that's that's racist. Like I said, it's structurally racist. I'm not saying anyone in the system goes home at night, twirls their mustache, and congratulates themselves for sticking it to black people. I'm not talking about hate in the heart. That so, doesn't so it's matter. not like the Oval Office then. <laughs> no, exactly. I'm not talking about St Stephen Miller isn't involved here. Yeah. Like it's it's irrelevant. I, in fact, the opposite. I think a lot of the people involved in college sports are probably extremely uh, compassionate and liberal when it comes to their views on race in general. I mean, like they're not they're not people that like walk around like feeling animosity and resentment towards African-Americans or other races. I, I don't I, I actually from the people I've met, I actually believe that 
but that's irrelevant because we're not we're talking about structuralism. We're not we're talking about outcomes. We're talking about systems. We're not talking about any person's personal feelings. That's not what matters here. We're mm. just looking at like who's doing the work, who's taking on the risk, and who's getting the rewards. And you're right. Like, fortunately, people are starting to realize and talk about that in ways that they weren't even doing four or five years ago. The National Bureau of Economic Research, which is not exactly a hotbed of liberal thought, um, they just put out a big study about two weeks ago, basically pointing this out. Like, this is a big racial wealth transfer system. Um, so when you've got, like, you know, economists who are, by, by nature, a pretty conservative bunch are saying the same thing, you know that something's wrong. And so, yeah, I mean, and I think with COVID, it's just one more thing where, like, these athletes are, again, are taking on even more of the risk. Um, and I think it's one more argument for if you're taking on literal physical risk, yeah, that's even more reason where, like, you should be allowed to have full economic rights and negotiate for and get a piece of the pie that you have earned and you deserve because you're doing the work and you're taking on the risk. And that's real talk right there. Patrick, any music you're listening to that you want to share? <laughs> you know what? Last time we, the last time we talked, I think I blew your mind by saying I was into Bossa Nova. Um, yes. <laughs> that these, these times are so stressful. I should probably be still more into that. But lately I've been getting into Synthwave. So a lot of, uh, you know, I'm 10 years behind the fact, but, uh, you know, that it wasn't a very good movie. That, that, that movie Drive, I, I didn't really like the movie that much. A lot of people oh, liked it a lot. But the I soundtrack's amazing. I thought so, Drive was awesome. Albert Brooks, Ron Perlman. I, I, I wanted to like it so bad. It so I wanted good. to like it so much that I didn't like it. I'm sorry. I apologize. But the soundtrack's incredible. Very, uh, very, very positive on chromatics and some of the other. Uh, just that whole sound in general is good. It's, it's, it's nostalgic and soothing at a time we need some of both. Damn, you and me are totally on the same page. Other than the movie itself, we're on the same page about that. I love that soundtrack. It sounds both new and it recalls me to the 1980s. And uh, it's great stuff, man. Good, good call. Let's play a little uh, a little uh, drive outro as we go to break. How does that sound? That sounds great. Thank you so much, Patrick Ruby. We'll be back right after this, after a quick word from The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation Magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe, and please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about love and basketball. Okay, look, with one announcement last week, a future gripping documentary became a Hollywood movie. Maya Moore, one of the great basketball players on earth with a closet full of trophies to prove the point, had left her career in her prime to pursue justice. 
Back in 2019, she shocked the world by turning away from the WNBA to take on our system of racist mass incarceration and focus on freeing a man named Jonathan Irons. At age 16, Irons was arrested for a crime that he said he did not commit, a home invasion robbery in Missouri. There was no physical evidence connecting him to the crime, but he was still handed a stunning 65-year prison sentence by an all-white jury. As fortune and unimaginable luck would have it, Irons had been in the youth choir of Maya Moore's uncle. That relationship continued when Irons was locked away to be forgotten, just another number in a system that houses more people behind bars than any country on earth. But the Moore family fought for his freedom, and two years ago, inspired in part by the Ava DuVernay film 13, as well as, of course, her generation's awakening to the fight for racial justice, she walked away from basketball to join the fight. As she told me in 2017 on this show, her family, quote, really felt a connection and compassion to help Jonathan, who didn't have a lot of resources to stand up and give him a voice to speak out against his wrongful conviction. The more we got to know him, the more outrage our family started to feel, especially seeing what an awesome person he is despite his circumstances and how he's grown and the things he's trying to do to fight for himself and continue to be a light where he is. Now Jonathan Irons is free. When he breathed freedom for the first time since he was a teenager back in March, he said of Maya Moore, she saved my life. I would not have this chance if not for her and her wonderful family. She saved my life and I cannot say it better than that. Now, if this was the end of the story, it would be gripping enough. No star athlete has ever walked away in their prime to pursue the aims of social justice. But we learned this week that the story has another wrinkle. Jonathan Irons, now 40, and Maya Moore are married. Speaking on Good Morning America, Moore said, we wanted to announce today that we are super excited to continue the work that we've been doing together, but doing it as a married couple. In other words, Maya Moore is going to continue her work fighting for the wrongly incarcerated, but now she's going to do so as a dynamic duo. Moore first met Irons when she was 18 and he was 27. Moore was a basketball prodigy and Irons was quote unquote skeptical whether Moore would remain in his life as she embarked upon an epic college career for the dynastic Yukon Huskies. But she kept in touch by sending him books and letters, as well as visiting when home from college. They became like family. Now they are family. In a year, 2020, when everything is so unremittingly dark, their story is more than just an unlikely love connection forged in the fires of fight back against an unjust system. It's a reminder that hope, even when it feels like just a gasping glimmer, still exists. It is also a sobering reminder. Jonathan Irons was meant to be buried by this system. He, by sheer happenstance, happened to be connected to a family of guardian angel activists committed to fighting for his freedom. One must reckon with the fact that there must be thousands of Jonathan Irons behind bars in this country, living every day, their days defined by an absence of hope. His story and the story of Maya Moore's family should inspire us to redouble our efforts to fight for the wrongly convicted, fight for alternatives to prison, and fight for a country that doesn't warehouse people who can't afford justice.
We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the part of the show we call Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. The Just Stand Up Award this week Stand up! goes to the Seattle Seahawks and the Atlanta Falcons. Now, if you saw the first weekend of NFL action, you know that there was this very sort of awkward dance taking place between an NFL that was doing what I call branding for black lives. You know, a lot of official celebrations about we are going to be a force to end racism. Uh, Largely, they're doing this because they want to avoid an NFL player strike. And yet beneath all of that kind of fluff and propaganda about them being woke and woke marketing, woke capitalism, whatever you want to call it, you had players who honestly wanted to be heard on this question of police brutality and police violence. So while the NFL was using slogans like end racism and uh, the answer starts with us, you know, things that could go on greeting cards and mean almost anything. Uh, NFL players were trying to really get out the word that, no, this is about police violence. This is what we are talking about. It is not end racism in the abstract sense. It's very specifically about people killed by police. And I thought the Seahawks and the Falcons did something quite remarkable that hasn't gotten nearly enough publicity, which was the Seattle Seahawks kicking off the ball to start the game and the Atlanta Falcons letting the ball fall harmlessly into the end zone while all the players on the field took a knee. I just thought that was beautiful. It's obviously a statement that play cannot go on as normal uh, as if people are being killed by the police. And I think in in that statement, there also lies within it a threat to NFL ownership that if they don't fulfill some of the promises they've been making about funding social justice initiatives and the like, that a strike is very much a possibility. And obviously, I hope I don't even have to say this, but the Just Stand Up Award this week, I also have to give a major shout out to the hero that emerged last weekend, Naomi Osaka. Stand up! And her victory at the US Open. And this remarkable line that she said right here to ESPN's Tom Rinaldi. You said from the beginning you had seven matches, seven masks, seven names. What was the message you wanted to send, Naomi? Um, Well, what was the message that you got was more the question. I feel like the point is to make people start talking. That's Naomi Osaka, and that is the powerful stuff right there. And I just so much respect for Naomi Osaka, so much respect for what she's doing, so much respect for the way that she helped the families of people who've been killed by police violence feel seen and feel heard. The Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. Oh, man. Goes to the video makers at NFL Films. And I actually feel bad for them a little bit. 
because they did a film to celebrate the NFL's commitment to racial justice. And in the film, there was a clip of Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed taking a knee. Now, if you know anything about what's happening right now in the NFL, then you also know that Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed are being blackballed, exiled, whiteballed, whatever word you want to use. But they have been kept out of the league as punishment for their actions in support of racial justice. Now, I felt a little bad for the people at the NFL Video Center because the, the videos, in a lot of respects, very beautiful and their heart is in the right place. And here's why I feel bad for them. If they had kept out Colin Kaepernick and Eric Reed, what would we be saying? We'd be calling it erasure. We'd be calling it a whitewash. We'd be calling it Stalinist even, like they're erasing pictures of Leon Trotsky and all the photos. But they included them, and that's also, in the words of Eric Reed, diabolical. Because look at what they're doing. They're trading on their protest to look like they care when they can't even find work for Colin Kaepernick or Eric Reed. Oh my goodness. So they were between a rock and a hard place. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. It was criticized by Kaepernick and as I mentioned, Eric Reed, and it was something that everybody on Twitter and social media dunked on. The fact that they used the images of two people that they're not allowing to play in their league. But as I said, if they didn't put them in, it would be a whole other set of complaints that we would have. But you know, I would, even though I feel sympathy for the people who made the video, that's on the NFL. That's the NFL's fault. If the NFL wasn't blackballing these folks. None of this would be happening in the first place. So to everybody at the NFL for putting yourself in a situation where you were between the rock and the proverbial hard place, sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. And very quickly, you know, we do a section on the show sometimes called Kaepernick Watch. Uh, I don't have anything specific about Colin Kaepernick, but I do want to say that I just finished my book and sent it into the publisher. The working title right now is Generation Kaepernick. Before I was calling it the Kaepernick Effect, but now it's called Generation Kaepernick. I hope they approve that title. And it's where I've interviewed just dozens of people, young people who took a knee in 2016, 2017, and they tell their stories. I'm really excited about this book. I look forward to talking to you all about it in the months ahead. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thank you to everybody for tuning in. Thank you so much to Patrick Ruby. Everybody out there, please, please, please listen to me. The fight continues. Make no mistake about it. And now we're going to see who's, you know, really willing to fight for social justice and who is going to cower because we lost one Supreme Court judge. So please, please think to yourself, which side am I on and what am I willing to do? Thank you to my producer, David Tigaboo. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.